Directing Interview is sponsored by the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind, transforming the lives of Alabamians who are deaf, blind, and multi-disabled. When you think about Southern comedy, who comes to mind? If it's not Roy Wood Jr., it probably should be because he's one of the hardest working people in comedy today. You'd recognize him from The Daily Show, from his many stand-up specials. He's all over Twitter. He hosts Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening. And he has a new project in the works. When we sat down earlier this year, we chatted about his plans to film a new sitcom in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to the very first episode of The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and in the weeks ahead, we'll be exploring the modern South. In this episode, Roy and I discuss stereotypes in Southern comedy and the unique obstacles facing entertainers coming out of places like Alabama. So kick back, relax, and settle in. This is The Reckon Interview. All right, Roy, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're a very busy man. You've got a new special out, uh, No One Loves You. Yes. You got season five and your second season of This Is Not Happening. Yes, 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 we do. Both on Comedy Central on the Comedy Central app or enjoy it live on Friday nights. And then, of course, uh, The Daily Show. Yes, that's that's the job job. That's the one that pays the bills. Let's talk a little bit about your new special. No one loves you. Okay. on your first special, you hit a bunch of, uh, I don't know, controversial topics. You talked about the Confederate flag. You talked about the N word protesting, patriotism, marriage and the struggle as you. (laughs) Um, How do you turn controversial topics into comedy while avoiding, you know, the cancel culture that uh, has plagued a bunch of other comedians? Yeah, well, so so for me, it's not so much about trying to be right or wrong on an issue as much as it is trying to present a prism that you may not have considered. And I feel like that's my place in the comedy zeitgeist. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to be preachy. I'm not setting out to be that, you know, I'm just here's another way to look at this. Oh, yeah. The Confederate flag is bad. Okay. Yeah. Unless you're a black person in Georgia at two in the morning and you need to decide which gas station is the safest and you see a Confederate flag, you know, that's not the gas station to stop at. In that instance, the Confederate flag was a good thing. It kind of it kind (laughs) of on the surface, it helped. So that's kind of where. I try to come from uh, in the new special. No one loves you. The first joke out the gate is about the national anthem and, you know, NFL players choosing to not stand for the anthem when the truth of the matter is that maybe we just need a new anthem. Maybe that's part of the problem. And so the rest of the joke at that point is on what songs would make a better national anthem than our existing national anthem. I talk about police reform and, you know, I'm trying to make the point that, you know, paying cops more would be an important part of the solution to all of this. Because when you pay people real money, they're invested in how other people do the job. Because And so it's just basically, it's a roundabout way of saying that, you know, pay cops more because then they'll behave like doctors. And doctors, like anytime a doctor does something wrong and breaks some code in the operating room, Everyone leaves the operating room and snitches on that doctor immediately. 
Right. Right. <laughs> There's no code of honor amongst doctors. It's they snitch. I mean, if the anesthesiologist gives too much, they all point the finger at <laughs> like yeah, cover your own ass. Exactly. Everyone covers their own ass because there's real money involved. And I feel like money increases the levels of sincerity that we think people already possess at a maximum level. And that's kind of where the title came from is that, you know, there's so many instances in this world where you think people care about you when the truth of the matter is that most people care about themselves. And if it's convenient and it helps you in the process, then cool. I'm happy you got something out of me helping myself. Sure. Are there topics you won't cover? Um, there's jokes. I w- like, there's no topic I wouldn't cover. If I can find the funny in it, I'll cover the topic. But me personally, just as a performer, I've never I've never had it in me to attack a marginalized group in my comedy and just go, oh, Asians are this or gay people are all this or just human, just sweeping generic stereotypical humor or ugly people are this or overweight people are that like that. Southerners are that. Southern, especially, especially Southern, South, like bashing the South. I just, I just don't do it. I can't allow it. That's one of the most difficult things at the Daily Show is when the South does something stupid. And then I have to walk into the writer's meeting that morning and go, all right, uh, all right, how am I going to spin this one? All right, Jeff <laughs> Sessions said, wait, Roy Moore did what at what mall? Oh, okay, I can't defend that one. All right, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you do you play a role in writing those jokes or killing some jokes? Or do you coach Trevor Noah when he's doing his Alabama accent? I, I, I definitely don't coach him on the Alabama <laughs> accent. I feel like it's more did of a, a pretty good job. I feel like it's more of a Kentucky bluegrass. I don't okay. think it's right spot on, but it's definitely Southern. He did for a good sure. job impersonating. Uh, Etowah County Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have the full veto power in any joke, but I would say that anyone that feels enough to stand up in a room of 25 people in the morning and go, that's not the right angle. They are heard. And those things are all taken into consideration. And I don't necessarily win every single battle. I know it's still news and it has to be discussed. So it's about figuring out ways to make jokes that are more on the issue than the people. That's always been my approach, but that's more of a sta- that's more of a stand up protocol that sure. I try to bring into the writer's room. But if it's not my piece, if I'm not on that chat, there's only so much influence I'm going to have. And because the morning meeting, just to give people a, an idea of how a morning goes at the Daily Show. You, you get in at about nine o'clock in the morning, you start with a blank sheet of paper and the writers and the producers in the studio segment, people are all in a room. Segment producers show clips from last night. You know, here's what happened and here's what's happening. Those are pretty much the two questions we're trying to answer every morning. We watch clips. We all crack jokes about the clips. It's no different than being around the couch with your buddies watching TV. And there's a person in the corner transcribing everything. And once we watch everything, we decide what the shape of the, well, Trevor and the EPs decide here's today's show. We're going to talk about the TSA. Uh, we're going to talk about the government shutdown and we're going to touch on the Oscars and how can we tie the Oscars into this and make it two parallels. And, and like that becomes the task. And then the writers break off into groups and they either work on segments for today or stuff for tomorrow. And that's pretty much how the day flows. So if you're in on a segment, 
like you're going to do a desk chat with Trevor or do some green screen correspondent on location stuff, then you break off with that writer. And that's where you have the most influence is when it's just you and three other people in a room. You're crafting the basic body of the stand of of the actual bit for the show. Your bit. The Reckon Interview is sponsored by the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind, transforming the lives of Alabamians who are deaf, blind, and multi-disabled. Uh, yeah. With the hat. Yeah, I had the hat on and everything. Bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, it yeah. was great. So a little like an Alabama season ticket holder. <laughs> like right. it was just right. very classy. Yeah. That was a chat that I was in on. And so that's where it's about uplifting the state and not calling us stupid or you have no teeth or you know, every other stereotype they like to throw at us. I just feel like being from Alabama. It's enough people that's going to do that, that it should be my job to try and push back against that ideology. And I mean, Daily Show and any other form of national comedy. I mean, they've been making Alabama jokes as long as Alabama's been a state and there's been TV. But during the Trevor Noah reign, y'all actually dedicated a uh, week to kind of engaging with Alabama. How did that come about? That was the first dedicated week that we did on the program. Since then, we've done a Chicago week. We've done a Florida week. But Alabama was the first one. And it came down to, you know, the the assumption that The Daily Show is this liberal leaning show that only cares about the Democrats and blah, 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 blah. And so then the issue becomes in the building. All right. So what's happening in the places where they probably don't like us that much? And Alabama is a deep red state. It is what it is. Jefferson County is blue. Mm. You get what I'm saying. It's traditionally always been a deep red state. So. If it's if that's what they are, then let's go see what the issues are that are affecting people down there. Or are there people down there that buck the stereotype that everyone sets about Alabama? So then the wheels kind of set in motion of trying to find all of the stories and all of the things that are going on in the state that would be interesting at a national level that are also parallel to other things that are going on. And we, we found a lot of good, interesting stuff. And I feel like and you found Bigfoot. Yeah, I found Bigfoot. You know, what's, what's crazy is that I wanted the Paul Feinbaum <laughs> story <laughs> and they ended up giving that one to Jordan Klepper. And, you know, Klepper sat down with Alabama and Auburn fans and basically was trying to paint the picture that regardless of race, creed, religion, this is the one thing that does unify the state just on a Saturday for three hours. All bigotry, hatred, everything comes to a stop. And we will watch them catch this football. We will agree on that. Amen. If nothing else. Uh, but yeah, I ended up talking to a gentleman in the Talladega National Forest who believes in Bigfoot, which, OK, that's to be expected of someone in Alabama. But because he believes in Bigfoot, he's working to fight deforestation, which is great for the environment, which is something everyone cares about. So what if he's trying to save the environment so that Bigfoot has somewhere to live? That's fine. You know, it is what it is. But at the end of the day, I felt like that was a story that, you know, there's a couple of laughs in there, of course, at the preposterousness of Bigfoot being real or not. And we can you can have those jokes on that. But then you can also have your jokes on the actual concept of conservation and what can we do to change this? At no point are we making fun of this man. At no point do we try to make fun of any of those people. And I think that's the thing that. I feel like, you know, I can't speak for the Jon Stewart era Daily Show, but I know under Trevor, that's never been the M.O. It's always been more of finding the jokes within the issue, not the person. I mean, there's certain people that are just unredeemable, 
to a point that yeah, yeah I'm going to yeah. crack jokes about you, but I'm call you crazy looking yeah, in the face. There's a difference but, between individuals and people as a whole. Correct. Uh, I mean, as a comedian coming out of the South, you know, you, you grew up in Birmingham, you went to school in Florida, uh, come back to Birmingham and are working at 95.7 Jams as a morning show host. Um, yeah. And then you go out to L.A., right? Correct. And, you know, were there any stereotypes that you ran into or was it, you know, was it tough making the transition from radio comedy to stand up comedy? Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of places in Birmingham to do stand up. We got the no, stardom. It's not. And, uh, there's more now than there was in 98 when I started. That's for dang sure. There's, you know, there's enough little open mics. and I, I got to give the local comics here credit for really creating a scene for themselves, because when I started at the stardom, open mic was once a month. It wasn't every week. It was once a month. You got five minutes and then you have three weeks to dissect this tape and go back and make the correction. By comparison, in New York City, even the most garbage open mic comic can find three mics to get up at every night. So over the course of a week, this open micer in New York has had more stage time than I'll have the entire year right. in the state of Alabama. If I choose to only stay in Birmingham, which means every week you got to drive. If you want to get on stage every week, you got to go to Atlanta. You got to take the Greyhound up to Knoxville. You have to do whatever it takes to go get five minutes somewhere else to get better. And that's why comics in bigger cities tend to be stronger, faster because they just get more reps in the gym. They get more batting practice. So, of course, they're going to be better at the game. You know, the stardom, the stardom was interesting because it was and still is one of the most respected clubs in the country. And I think what I got there in that time between open mics and I don't know if Bruce, Bruce Ayers, the owner of the club, I don't know if Bruce and Dina, the booker, did this deliberately. But what happens is that because you're only getting up once a month, you spend the other three weeks watching the headliners and Bruce has never made never like, Oh my God, so many clubs will not let the open micers come and watch the headliners. They shoo them away and tell them get lost and don't stand here. You're no comics back then. Why? Because they just feel like we're in the way we're locusts. They don't see us as students. And Bruce has always seen the local comedians as students and has respected the fact that, yeah, there's no open mic this week. But if you can find a little spot to duck off in, sure, stand up on that perch and watch D.L. Hughley rip it for an hour so you can see what you're doing and find figure out ways to better yourself. That club, even till this day, is some of the most diversity in comedy, there's there are acts that, you know, are more for blue collar white people and there are acts that are legit urban acts. And then there's mainstream acts. And then there's always a new name that you haven't heard of being integrated into the mix. That club had L.A. level talent at all times because Bruce Ayers was a respect that Stardome was a respected club from the 80s and the 90s when it used to be on Greenspring. So every big name act that blew up in the 90s still came back to the Stardome out of respect for Bruce. So because of that, myself and a lot of local guys Comparable to other cities in the South, the Stardome booked week in, week out, the same quality acts you could find in any major city in this country. And to this day, that still holds true. And that was a very important part of my growth was being able to see good comedy. 
that's just as important as doing it is watching it sometime. That's actually something this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm trying to get back into studying performance and preparation. It's something that I feel like I strayed away from. I I saw Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> I, did, I did this pilot for ABC two years ago and Whoopi Goldberg played my mom. And before you shoot a pilot, they have what's called a table read where you and all the other actors sit around and you just read the script aloud and the execs are in the room and they're listening to the jokes and the writers are there and they're making their little checks and highlights on what jokes should and shouldn't work. And traditionally, writer actors just read off the script. You look down, you perform it and you do all of the proper intonations, but you read it. I saw Whoopi Goldberg speed read a script that I know for a fact she did not see before that morning. There's no way she saw those pages before that morning. She may have had an hour with this script before we got in that room in front of those execs and she knew all of her damn lines. Wow. And I want to know what the hell happened in that hour. Like that's what I'm starting to become obsessed with is what is it about your performance? What do you do in the preparation? What's your process? Is that because you're working on your own sitcom now? Yes, that's where it immediately came back to mind. And I also feel like comedians, we get so unraveled in the actual content of our act that I think we forget about the performance. It's still a show. Chris Rock had a quote somewhere um, where he said, it's good to sweat on stage. People love sweat because it means you're working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't sweat on stage, but I, what I took from that was the importance of performing the joke. So now when I go back and watch old tapes of myself, I try to watch them on mute and just look at my body language and just see if my body language matches the intention of the joke right down to stage. But, oh, what are you doing with your eyebrows? Are you sh- Chris Rock made a beautiful observation about Martin Lawrence and Martin Lawrence's stand up in his early day, like his first two specials. They got him to sitcom. They got him Def Comedy Jam, which got him to sitcom, which got him Bad Boys. For all of the craziness and wackiness that Martin Lawrence did running and zipping across that stage, every time he delivered a punchline, his shoulders were squared to the audience. Hmm. And that's acting. That's perform. That's theater. Yeah. And so there's a level of that that I feel like I need to make sure I nail, especially if I have a sitcom coming down the pipe because you're not guaranteed to. So every little nuanced thing about performance, I now care about every little nuanced thing about set design and just joke placement and where things belong in a set. You know, I feel like, you know, I, and I've been asking some of my friends and I asked, asked um, Neil Brennan and I asked Trevor Noah this, you know, I was just talking about leadership, you know, and what's that like? Because they've led shows and films and things like that, because I know that I have a level of passion and a level of attention to detail that I'm not sure I share that I'm not sure is going to be shared with everyone that I hire. And I'm concerned that if I project that the wrong way, it will come across as me trying to be some sort of tyrant or something weird. And you just wish you could infuse the stakes to someone or infuse 
why the details matter. And a lot of people don't care. A lot of people just want to check and just write the script and design the thing and be Mm -hmm. done with it. But, you know, if I'm going to shoot a show and it's set in the South and I have an opportunity to shoot a sitcom that's set in the South, even if we don't verbally identify it as Birmingham, Alabama, you're going to know. The people in Alabama are going to know. And the people who have seen the South will go, wow, that's a different type of South. Like something as simple as he eats a, a character's eating a barbecue rib. It's going to have white sauce on it. Right. Right. Just because just just those little tweaks, those little things to me add layers to a, to a script. And I'm becoming very obsessed with it. And I don't know if that's healthy, but <laughs> That to me, and I've rambled, I'm sorry, but no, it's it's very important to me that what I'm doing, not only on stage, but on television or on the daily show, says something different and unique and presents a different prism to what you think you already know about an issue, which is back to the original question. You know, it's yeah, we could talk about gun control and whether or not you should or shouldn't have a gun. Okay. But let's talk about the people who think the government is going to take their gun. Okay, fine. Let's talk about that. How are they going to take it? Will they show up at the house? Will it be Waco style like like that? Cause I have an uncle who has a lot of guns and, <laughs> right. and that was an actual conversation I had with him. I mean, like, like they're not going to take your guns. Like they're going to, they're going to kill you with the food and want you to get sick. So you need the <laughs> overpriced health care. That's the hustle. Right. Why would the government kill you with a gun when they can just fleece you for hundreds of thousands <laughs> until you're 80? Like you don't kill your best customers. No, of course not. Come on, smoke this cigarette. <laughs> like, that's, that's how you get people. So to me, yeah. it's not a, it's not even a gun control joke as much as it is about health care and our health care system. You just use gun control as an entry point. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's my approach to all of this, man, is to give you something, hopefully do something that you haven't seen before, present it from a perspective that you haven't considered. That's the whole point of the damn sitcom. It's, it's a buddy comedy. It's two probation officers handling their caseload in the South. So, so for me, with comedy, I got started in stand up because I got arrested when I was 19. And so part of my journey was that When I was 19, I had a work study in a campus post office and I stole a credit card and we went and bought jeans so we could look fresh for homecoming. Apparently, this is illegal. (laughs) Who knew? I did not know this. I did not know you could just not take another person's credit card and present it as your own. (laughs) Right. Apparently, there are laws. I don't know when this became a law, but it's a law. (laughs) And so I ended up on probation for for three years. And what happened during that time on probation, first I thought I was going to prison. That was the first thing I was like, okay, well I got arrested. I'm going to prison. This is it. This is the end of me. I'm going to prison. And that was the catalyst that actually got me to try comedy was because, all right, well, nothing else matters. I'm going to die in jail. I'm going to get shanked. Like, it's going to be like, like, it's like that in my head, jail was the scene from Scarface at the refugee camp at the beginning where they have to stab the guy. Like to me, jail is, is it tense under the freeway? That's where I'm going to be in prison. And some guy's going to get a phone call from another guy and they're going to go kill him. (laughs) Who? The one who steals blue jeans from Macy's. 
he's a threat to our empire. <laughs> and so, so I, the depression that comes with being in the backseat of a police car is, you know, I don't know. It's, it's not a feeling I would invite on anyone. I think that and, I, I had a similar experience. I became a journalist as a result. <laughs> <laughs> See? So, so I get this charge of mail theft and on the assumption that I'm going to prison, um, it's January. I got arrested in 98 and, you know, my lawyer basically says in so many words, you'll be sentenced in a couple of months, tie up any loose ends you have in your life, which is some wild shit to say to somebody that's 19. Just, Jesus, yeah. Hey, you're 19. This is it for you. Um, like you almost would rather just go on to jail right. or just get it started versus, Hey, you're going to jail. But what do you say? You're going back out in the world and try to enjoy it for the next five months. Hey, go ahead there, kiddo. <laughs> and so I started doing stand-up comedy to deal with the depression of knowing that I would have to go to prison. And so I started doing stand-up. I go, I, I catch a Greyhound to Birmingham and I do an open mic at the Stardome and I take a cab back to the Greyhound station right there by City Hall. And that starts the process of the journey of comedy for me. And so like January or February of that following year, I guess that's 99. Um, I get a, I get a financial aid check in the mail for my classes to pay for my classes for the spring. But then I get a suspension letter from Florida A&M saying, you are hereby suspended from campus because you committed a crime on campus. So don't come on campus. Also, we heard you going to jail. So enjoy jail. And, you know, wow. Like that basically was what it, that's basically what it was. So now I'm suspended from school, but now I have $7,000 and I have four months to spend it, spend it all. And the only thing that I enjoyed doing was comedy. So I just, that money opened up the entire Eastern seaboard. So now I can take the bus anywhere. And all I had to do to pay my rent was work at Golden Corral 10 hours a week because my share of the rent was like 300 bucks. So yeah. like rent, you t- everything, 300 bucks. Wow. Yeah. I know you're jealous. Yeah, I hear you're jealous. Yeah. So. I started doing stand up and I started going everywhere I can, every open mic, anywhere, pretty much from Dallas. If we were going to like form like a little triangulation, it would go Tallahassee to Dallas, to Cleveland, to Richmond. Anything within that swath of land, I told a joke in in those four months. And I go to sentencing and I got probation. So now I don't have to go to jail. And then I write a couple of letters and, you know, God bless Florida A&M. And I'll always hold this college in my heart because there were people who put their neck on the line who didn't have to, to see to it that I got re-enrolled. And so my enrollment status was reinstated at the university and now I'm straight and narrow. And at this point I'm making Dean's list every semester and I'm still doing comedy on the weekend. And I've condensed my stand up. I've condensed 15 to 16 credit hours into three days, Tuesday through Thursdays, so that I could travel Thursday night on the bus and 
perform on the weekends because at this point I'm getting weekend gigs because I did all the hard work in the spring. Take the bus back Monday night, take a night class, then go to Golden Corral, work a closing shift Tuesday morning, take classes from 9 a.m. till I think 730. Like it was I just packed my schedule, but it was the best time. I mean, my grades were immaculate because I only had one day a week that I could study. Did so, the idea for this show reestablish your your sitcom that you're developing? Did that start with there you probation? Go. There you go. So I had a probation officer who understood what the stand up meant to me. And they have and this differs from district to district because it's not the same in every city. You know, for some for some for some jurisdictions, probation is a state level state level monitoring. And then for other cities, it's city and, you know, it's federal, whatever. Yours was um, in Florida. Correct. Okay. It's federal, but it's still in Florida. So Florida was my region. And I had a probation officer who looked at my grades, looked at what I was doing and went, all right, you can travel and tell these jokes. Just prove that you were there, prove the show happened and, you know, whatever. And we'll be fine. And so that was something he didn't have to do. And when you look at crime and punishment, especially now when you look at the, the conversation around forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is really where a lot of these conversations are really rooted in whether we want to talk about that or not. When you look at the concept of forgiveness, we're at a constant state in our society of trying to figure out who's worthy of the second chance and who isn't. And what I hope to do with the television show is just show how probation works because Every day, probation officers have to decide who gets a second chance and who goes to jail. And even that's not an exact science. And that's the closest thing we have to federally regulated apologies. And even that's not accurate. And so figuring out the nuance and seeing that in people and seeing what happens when you give someone a second chance who deserves it versus the consequences of giving a second chance to someone who doesn't. And I think those are real, very real issues that are around all the time. And this show isn't so much my story as much as it is the story of people like my probation officer and people who are the exact opposite. Yeah, I had a similar experience in college where, you know, I uh, was smoking the devil's lettuce. Oh, yes. uh, Got arrested on paraphernalia charges (laughs) and spent the night in jail and um Go before the judge that morning and, you know, she says, have you ever done this before? And I say, well, I think this was probably my second or third time. And she sees I'm from the suburbs of Birmingham and I'm a college student at the University of Alabama. And they give me deferred (laughs) prosecution. And that was the moment where I was like, well, I mean, this is great for me, but this is like this probably isn't the norm. And so that's when I started thinking about the criminal justice system differently. And so probation officers are the only branch of law enforcement whose job it is to keep people out of jail. Yeah. They're measured by the people who stay free, not the people that they lock up. It's like really, it's literally a reverse quota system. If too many of your parolees, (laughs) too many of your clients, excuse me, if too many of your clients are going to jail, then what are you doing? How are you not motivating them? What are you doing wrong? That's not connecting with them. Are you not getting them the services they need? Are you not putting them with the right people? Are you talking to his family members to make sure they're there as a support system? There's so many different layers to that. And I just feel like I was very fortunate to be a kid that, you know, basically was, you know, speeding along a cliff on a curvy winding road on a cliffside. And I had two tires off the road. And 
you know, fortunately there were people there for me who helped pull me back and support me. And I got the degree. And by the time I moved back home to Birmingham, I had three years of road comedy experience. This was the other thing, because I was so obsessed with doing comedy while I was enrolled. I had excellent grades, but I had no internships. Mm-hmm. I forfeited every inter- every journalism internship I could have had. I passed up because I was just I was on the road and it was fun. It was therapeutic. It was what I needed. And by the time I got the job at 95.7, I couldn't let that go because I still needed that. That was still part of my being. So I would rather drive five hours, sleep in my car for two hours before the show, go do the show, get back in my car, drive five hours back to the station, sleep on the couch in the jock lounge, wake up at 630, do a prank call, have it on air by 705. I would rather do that every day for years than to just completely walk away from stand up and just work five hours a day in Birmingham and go home. And knowing what my life could have been instead of this, I would be a moron if I didn't bust my ass to get as much as I can and to do as much as I can and then pass that knowledge on to anybody else. And that's why when I'm on TV, man, I do everything I can to say Alabama. I do everything I can to mention Birmingham because I'm God willing. I'm somebody else's Ricky Smiley. I'll never know. Yeah. But. You got to hope some kid that's watching TV one night goes, oh, he's from West End. Oh, I can do this. I live in Pleasant Grove. <laughs> like, you know, like there's. Yeah, I would I would hope that's the case. But even if it's not, I'm going to try and bring some stuff here so that these kids know that they can do whatever they want. And just, you know, people try to disregard the South, but there's plenty going on good in the South. Coming up after the break, Roy and I discussed the moment a little kid from Alabama realized he could make it in comedy. When you're not in Alabama and somebody from Alabama does something good, it gives you something to brag about because you get to attach yourself to that thing. Hey, I just want to take a quick minute to tell you about our presenting sponsor, the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind. This is a cause that's near and dear to me because my brother was born profoundly deaf. AIDB is the nation's most comprehensive education and service program for children and adults who are deaf, blind, and multi-disabled. Serving over 26,000 Alabamians each year, AIDB is transforming lives beyond expectations by refusing to let adversity limit any individual's potential. To find out more about AIDB's K-12 schools, outreach in public schools around the state, and its network of regional centers, visit AIDB.org. Yeah, man, I'm trying to show these streets. I'm trying to show, you know, everything up and down because, you know, God willing, more importantly, is if we can get kids on the set, that would be my dream. man. my dream would be to figure out a way to like the thing I lacked growing up in Birmingham was a lack of sense of the size of the universe. And I'm sure a lot of that is to blame on there not being an internet, you know, and I wanted to do comedy when I was 14, but I just, where do you go? How do you, I didn't even know we had a comedy club until I started doing comedy in Florida. I never knew Birmingham even had that. I saw Sinbad on TV. Sinbad was performing up the street. Yeah. And in those days when the club was on Green Springs, they did under 12 shows for Sinbad because he worked clean. They would do an early show Hmm. where they wouldn't serve alcohol. And parents could bring their kids. I could have gone and seen that dude for $8 on Green Springs Highway. Yeah. 
But on TV, it's a whole nother world. And you think that you can't reach that. You think you can't attain that because you're just a kid in Alabama that's walking down the street every day, crossing railroad tracks. But if you show kids what it is and what's going on, you demystify it a little. Where did uh, Ricky Smiley come into play in terms of your career ambitions? He was the... You remember in The Matrix when Neo finally makes the jump across the building? Mm -hmm. That was me seeing Ricky Smiley on TV and screaming Alabama on Comic View. It was that moment where I go, oh, I can do this. All those other people that I'd looked up to were just superstar arena acts who, wow, that's crazy. I have a couple funny jokes. Should I perform at the high school talent show? No, I shouldn't. I should just shut up and be happy I finally fit in. And then I saw Ricky on TV and I, I don't know. It, it, I don't know if it'll mean anything to anyone else, but when you're not in Alabama and somebody from Alabama does something good, it gives you something to brag about because you get to attach yourself to that thing. It's bigger than football. It's no different than football. Well, you, you, you know, you live in, I don't know, Kansas. And Alabama does something good and everybody in the office knows you're from Alabama. They give you a little pat on the back and go, yeah, man, way to go for you guys. Whatever. That's what Ricky Smiley was. Ricky Smiley took he took comedy by storm in the South and he went on Comic View and I'm from Alabama, man, Alabama up in here, Alabama. And so when we would watch Comic View in the dorm in the TV lounge, I would be screaming, that's right, man, Alabama. And that made it residually made me cool because he was from where I was from. And internally, it it took the shine off of comedy. It took the luster off of it. It instantly went from something that was over the horizon to something that was next door. I'm from West End. Ricky Smiley's from four exits up by 20. If he can do it. I'm, all right. And you I'll go mean, give it a shot. He's about 10 years older. And, Correct. And your careers are. I mean, pretty similar. I mean, everything from, you know, uh, crank calls uh, on radio. radio and and now you're hosting um, This Is Not Happening, which, you know, it's you introducing comedians who are, are doing bits. Same I mean, thing you did like on Comedy View. Yeah. It, so he, was that conscious? I mean, the radio stuff was. Yeah. Because at the time when you don't know, you just imitate what you've seen that's been done well. And so. I kind of lucked up because in 2001, when I graduated from college, I moved back to Birmingham. They had just Ricky had just left. Ricky had left early in like, let's just say early 2001. Ricky had left and I got to town around October or November. And they had had a couple of comedians on, but they all got fired or, you know, Buck Wild at the time was the Buck Wild morning show. Um, Buck Wild didn't like them. And so I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever, if you've ever heard the D.O. Hughley, how I got the job at 95.7 mm -mm. story. So I knew that Ricky, Ricky Smiley did two things. Ricky Smiley came up in the club scene here in Birmingham. From what I understand, he was at the Stardome. The big fire happened at the Stardome on Green Springs. And while they were waiting to build, while they were waiting to rebuild the stardom where it is now in Hoover, Ricky started doing stuff around town and started, you know, starting little comedy rooms, little chitlin circuit, little black stuff. 
And he really built a name for himself. He got on 95.7, used the juice from 95.7 to get other comedians from the region to come to town to perform at his at his at his one nighters. So by using the comedy club, he used his comedy night as a networking as a networking device. If we're just looking, I'm just I was looking at his business model. Mm -hmm. Radio gave him popularity in town, which got people to come to the shows and you get enough people at the show. You have enough money to pay comedians that live out of town. And now you're building your network and meeting other comedians because money is the medium or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that was enough juice for one of those comedians to recommend to the Comet View producers that Ricky come do Comet View. I know a guy in Birmingham, he'd rip it. Y'all should have him on. Boom. Ricky does Comet View to the moon. Got it. So I graduate and I go, okay, well, what's the easiest way to get on Comet View? You need to get on Comet View to get Def Jam to do more stuff. And if you get on TV, you can get more money. Radio. Cool. I have a degree in broadcast. Double cool. I've been doing comedy three years. Triple cool. All I got to do is get hired at the radio station. Go to the radio station. Buckwell says no. <laughs> Sorry. Immediately says no. He says, we've already auditioned everybody in Birmingham. Like He literally said to, to, in a roundabout way, there's no one else funny in this city but Ricky Smiley. Wow. And Ricky was headed out to Dallas at this point to do, he was preparing to do his morning show, which eventually became his syndicated show. Right. So I go, okay. And what I knew about the Stardome at the time was that on Friday nights, when there was a black act, it was sponsored by 95.7. And when 95.7 sponsors a comedy show, Buck Wild and Africa, the co-host at the time, they go out and introduce the first comedian. So D.O. Hughley was the headliner that weekend. And this is for me driving up to the radio station at 530 in the morning, camping out the same way Ricky Smiley used to do mm -hmm. when he got hired at 95.7. Ricky used to sleep in front of the front door of the radio station. It was on First Ave and like 21st Street or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I did the same thing. I came in town. I camped out. I met Buck. He said no. And I said, hey, man, well, don't worry about it. No big deal. If you don't think I'm funny, I don't think I can do the job. Uh, tell you what, though, I'm opening for D.L. Hughley this weekend. And if I'm funny, hopefully you'll reconsider. He goes, you know what? If you make me laugh, I'll think about it. I go, cool. So I leave the radio station. I go home and I call Bruce Ayers at the Stardome. And I say, hey, man, I don't know if you heard or not, but I just started at 95.7 this week. <laughs> and I talked with Buck and we figured it'd be cool if I just went up first and just did, you know, and just did a couple of minutes just to kind of introduce the station and introduce the listeners to me or whatever and say hello and just, you know, maybe do three, four minutes. And Bruce is like, all right, because that's the radio station's time. Right. It doesn't count against the actual comics that they have already set for the evening. So I so I tell Buck I represent the radio. I tell Buck I represent the comedy club. I tell the comedy club I represent the radio station. We get to the comedy club Friday night. All I have to do is keep Buck and Bruce Ayers apart long enough. All right. right. It's a con. Yeah. Every time Bruce Ayers comes in the green room, I ask for something to get him the hell out of the green room. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you got some napkins and nachos and I just need some chicken wings, Bruce. And I just keep coming up with things, coming up with things, coming up with things. And Buck and Africa go on first and do what they always do and throw out the T-shirts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to 95.7 and all that. And then they bring me out and I go up and I don't know how the stars align sometimes, but they do. And I demolish for it's four minutes. It's not a long time, 
but I crushed, like just, I haven't, oh my God, I can probably only think of, I can probably only think of two or three comedy sets I've had in my life that were even remotely close to that night. And as I'm coming off stage, Buck Wild is standing right there and he says, see you Monday morning. And that's how I got started at 95.7. Wow. Like that was, you know, you, you just do what you have to do. I just figured the worst that could happen. I just bomb. And he just says no again. <laughs> like right, you, right. Yeah. You, you, already, you already told me no. And then I just hide from the comedy club for a month. And then I go back in a month and I go, yeah, 95.7. No, nah, they tripping. They fired me like they did everybody else. <laughs> so there was no, I just feel like there wasn't a lot at stake. Yeah. So it just seemed like the sensible lie to tell to force an audition on everyone. And but that club has been very important. And, you know, once I got started there, the problem was that because the city had gotten Ricky Smiley for about five years straight, I think Jam signed on in 95, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 94. At this point, it's 2001. They wanted me to basically do what Ricky Smiley did. They wanted me to do pranks, but I didn't want to do pranks. I wanted to do parody songs and I wanted to do fake commercials. I wanted to figure, I was trying to figure out a way to differentiate myself from Ricky because otherwise I, you're never going to live in the shadow of Ricky Smiley. You mm-hmm. can't, it's, it's Aaron Rodgers under Favre. Like it was just, you're doomed. Right. And so the first thing, the first promise I made myself, you can try to follow Ricky, Ricky's path a little, but you can't do what Ricky did. So Buck, made it perfectly clear that prank calls were the most important feature of the show. So I had to do the pranks to keep the job. I didn't want to do pranks, but I had to do them. And if you want to keep this job, you better do them well. So I started just mechanically breaking down. All right, what are the elements of a good prank call? You need this, you do this, you figure this out, and then you say this and insult this and attack that. They curse at you, mm-hmm. you curse them back. Um, but the, the main thing, the main promise I made myself is that I wouldn't do any voice that Ricky Smiley had already done Okay, just to force people into, you can't compare me because I'm not doing an old lady. I'm not doing, he had this redneck Buford that was so funny. Oh my God. And I wanted to do a redneck so bad. And I had to wait a couple of years before I would even try to integrate one into my act, into the pranks, because I didn't want to be the first thing people are going to say. You ain't Ricky Smiley. Right. Stop trying to be Ricky Smiley. But if I'm not doing his voices, that at least takes some of that off the table mm-hmm. for criticism. Um, but that was that was, you know, to answer the question, that was kind of where Ricky's influence lie. And once I discovered, though, the, the, the difference between between Ricky and myself was that I was making enough money on the road, doing road gigs on the weekend that it didn't really make sense for me to start a comedy night. I just didn't I'm like comedically Ricky and I are two different instruments. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're not, our comedic styles are not the same. And my style of comedy, Ricky's very warm. He's very interactive with people. He, he's, he has the ability to bounce between being a host and being a performer and they're not the same. And to have a good comedy room in Birmingham, you need to be a good host Comedy is cute. That's cool. But can you host? Can you interact? Can you connect with people on a regular basis and make them feel like they're a part of this journey? And I cannot. But you host. uh, This is not happening. To me, I enjoy that. But I feel like that's a little different in the sense that 
I get to tell a story to set the table for all of the other heinousness. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. That's for coming. people not familiar with the show, it's kind of like the moth, but at a strip club. Like it's yeah, it's the moth. Stories. It's the moth on acid with two shots of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's very, you know, it's it's a lot of edgy story. It's edgy storytelling. Edgy storytelling. Yeah. But very funny stuff, all true stories. And, you know, I just, I just opted to stay on the road. So, you know, my time in 95.7, the general protocol was if the gig was five hours or less from Birmingham, then I would come back that night so that I could keep the radio job. I didn't want to lose the radio job, but now I was kind of serving two masters in a way mm-hmm. because, you know, Monday, every morning at seven ten, you need that prank call delivered. And if you don't have it, then you're going to be in trouble. But you also needed to work on your jokes. But I was young. I stayed with my mom for a couple of years. So I could get my money up and, that was that was how it all started. Like, and, and you were sleeping out of your car at one point. Yeah. Oh, a lot, yeah. a lot, because you'd have a day off between two fifty dollar gigs. You get a hotel that burns one of the gigs. Yeah. So it was easy to just sleep at a flying J truck stop or at airport. Airport short term parking, highly underrated in terms of car sleep. Cameras, lots of foot traffic, and pretty quiet. Hmm. Pretty, pretty quiet. That's good. Um, police, uh, police station parking lots, hospital emergency room parking lots. Those are also really good. Sleep in the car if you want to feel safe and comfy knowing it. <laughs> Sleeping outside Security. of it. Yeah. Wait, okay. That's good. Yeah. I'm well, here to give tips. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess a lot of people have this dream at one point. You know, when I was in eighth grade, I, for career day, I did a stand up bit because I thought, you know, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. That's what I want to do someday. Obviously, I am not a stand-up comedian. You are, uh, you know, doing a morning show. You're sleeping in your car. Are there moments where you think about quitting? Yeah, I still think about quitting. Because what what happens with entertainment is that you spend half your career trying to get it. And then when you get it, you spend the other half of your career panicking about losing it. And trying to figure out a way to, how do I, what do I do? How do I get this over here? And like, it's like the jaguar that catches the antelope and then immediately he has to take it up a tree because he knows 12 hyenas are coming. (laughs) Right, right. Like, that's what happens when you get it. Now you just look, you spend the rest of your day looking for hyenas and hyenas present themselves in different, when I say hyenas, I mean career hurdles, you know, lethargy, um, getting caught up in nightlife or, just becoming creatively lazy and repetitive. I've actually spent more time lately in terms of looking at the trajectory of performers, but I've, I've grown an affinity to start studying comedians who quit comedy and pivoted to something else and became successful. Uh, Judd Apatow is, is one that started in comedy and then was, but was also a writer at the same time. And then just spent 20 years writing great comedies He's back in stand up now, but I always wonder what what made him say, you know what, let's leave stand up alone. Let's go do this for a little while. John Ridley, who won uh, an Emmy for I think it was American Crime mm-hmm. on ABC. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was a stand up. His, his origin is stand up. Byron Allen, who now owns the Weather Channel and straight media mogul, 300, 400 million dollar man was a stand up. Yeah. 
You know, he ran. Steve with Martin him. quit famously just when he was, you know, Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah. Just walked out on top. Yeah. yeah. And so there's something to is stand up all I'm destined to do or are there other things that I'm really out for and that I really, you know, other mountains that I want to climb. And I really think that TV production and having an opportunity for film production and being able to do something that at some point could move the needle for the state of Alabama. And I just don't, and I, and I, and I try to be better now about not saying Birmingham and saying Alabama and I love Birmingham, but there's so many good parts of this state. There's so many dope things happening in pockets all over the state that I don't think a lot of people know about. And I think you get a couple of cameras here on a regular basis. It could help everybody, not just Birmingham, but Birmingham first. (laughs) (laughs) Our Birmingham listeners will appreciate that. So you went to school for broadcast journalism. Correct. Your dad was a radio host. Yeah. I had a brother. You had a brother who was a journalist too? Yeah, I had a brother. He was an anchor for 13, oh, uh, okay. WVTM, Roy yeah. Wood. He, had a, there, he has a different last name, so he's technically not a junior. Um, and then I have another brother, Arthur, that was an executive producer for numerous TV stations, numerous TV affiliates across the country. And I'd say he's probably the only one in the family that's worked at every channel like every broadcast channel, <laughs> right. including PBS, yeah, like ABC, yeah. Fox, CW, NBC, done them all, top to bottom, CBS. Um, and now you're on The Daily Show. Correct. Which, I mean, is is a news parody. But there's also, I mean, it's uh, do you consider yourself a, a form of journalist? I mean, you get comedians to tell true stories about themselves. You get up, you talk about tough topics, you shed light on underreported stories. Is I that something com- you bake into your comedy? I think comedy is for sure a degree of journalism. I know at The Daily Show, they consider it, they prioritize the joke first, but the joke is rooted in a truth. And for a lot of people, it's the first time they're learning that truth. So residually, it's journalism. Even if you, that's not the goal and that's not what you set out for it to be when we sit down at nine o'clock in the morning with a blank sheet of paper. All right, that's fine. But there are a lot of people who still get their, admittedly, get their news from the Daily Show. Yeah. They don't watch network news. They don't watch 60 Minutes. They watch Trevor Noah four nights a week and they go, oh, I got a good idea of what's going on. And we do set up the story. We set up the information this is what's happening and here's how they're handling this. And then we make jokes on how the issue is being handled or, you know, whatever, but we still try to leave the viewer to have their own opinion on whether or not they're for or against it. And I mean, there have been times, you know, Trevor Noah talking about the shooting of VJ Bradford and Hoover uh, after Thanksgiving. I mean, that was pretty joke free. That was a heartfelt monologue yeah. You know, I mean, and John Stewart obviously has, you know, built a career around both comedy, but also advocacy for 9-11 firemen. Um, when do those moments pop up where it's like, OK, this isn't something Trevor's going to joke about, but it is something he's going to talk about. That's Trevor's call. Another yeah. good one is the Philando Castile verdict mm-hmm. when the officer was in charge for the shooting of Philando Castile in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And those are the days where Trevor just kind of just shoots from the heart. No one helps him write those segments at all. Really? It's literally just him staring into the camera and going, here's what's wrong. Here's the issue. And really trying to boom, 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 boom. And I think there are a lot of incidents that happen in this country where at the end of the day, 
it's not a joke. It's not funny. It's still too real for a lot of the people that are victims or that are close to the issue. And I think if those issues are big enough to cast a shadow on everything else in a national conversation, we wouldn't be good journalists if we didn't address it. Mm-hmm. And I think in those moments when it's the heavy stuff, you know, Trevor does most of the lifting on it. But I think in those instances, that's kind of proof positive that we can say we're jokes first. But at the end of the day, we still care about people and care about the issues that connect us. And I think that in and of itself is a form of journalism. So take that comedy central. <laughs> Have there been moments uh, in your career where... Uh People have been surprised that you are a comedian from Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. Uh, You know, what's funny is the accent. There's days where, you know, when you take journalism, when you take broadcast journalism classes, they kind of you take all these voice and diction and enunciation classes and how to speak the more intonation with the non-regional diction, as they call it. And comedy and alcohol in my 20s completely deprogrammed everything I learned in college. (laughs) And so there's days where people will say that I don't sound like I'm from Alabama. And then there's days where people go, where in the South you from? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it varies from person to person. It just depends. Yeah. I mean, good. I don't know if you I I Googled uh, before this interview, I just Googled Southern comedians to see what pops up. And it's always like Jeff Foxworthy. And I just feel like sometimes, you know, the Ricky Smiley's and the Roy Wood Juniors. uh, Yeah. What else should get get left out of the mix? And I don't know if that's because I mean, if it's a race thing or people. I think Southern is considered a style instead of a place. Is that right? And I think that's part of the problem. What does that mean? It means that. Oh, it's Southern style. So it's, hey, y'all, and it's the traditional stand on the front porch. And I tell you what, and I love Jesus. And it's an ignorant POV because you're assuming that the Southern experience is one singular thing. (laughs) It's, hey, y'all, and I've just made some lemonade. I love my neighbors and I just love everybody and football. Right. No, you're just from the South. You can be a Southern comedian. I'm just a dude from the South. I tell my jokes and I do. I I try my best to not get offended when people say that because I don't think they mean anything malicious by it. They just go, oh, wow, this is a different type of Southerner that I'm not used to interacting with or that I've never interacted with a Southerner before. Mm -hmm. And this was pretty cool. This was a really good show, man. Wow. I didn't I didn't know what to expect when I came to see you. And this is funny. But yeah, I feel like there's there's this sense where the South is this one thing. It infuriates me when I see movies set in the South and it's still the same old small hot church. And it's like, stop it. That's that's one reason why. I love what's happening with film and TV production in Atlanta. You know, they try to act like Atlanta isn't the South, you know, like people like outsiders come to well, Atlanta, but that's different. It's not the Atlanta is Atlanta. Right. No, there's a lot of places that culturally are on par with what's happening in Atlanta. Yeah. The same type of people you find in Atlanta, you can find in Nashville, 
you can find in Memphis. This isn't somewhere. It's not like Miami. Now, Miami's not the South. Miami's not the South. It's too far down. Miami. It ends at like Orlando. Miami is a Southern city, but it is not the South. Like you would never be from Miami and someone consider you a Southerner. Right. Where does it stop for you? Where does the South stop? um, D.C. Is D.C. the South? No. I'd say Richmond. Okay. But I feel like there's a little cultural overlap that starts around Raleigh-Durham. Okay. Even the architecture changes. Like if you look at the houses and the style of housing in Raleigh Durham, it's very northeastern and it's very kind of old school, you know, with the columns and the yard. There's there's not a lot of front yard. There's not a lot of front porch the way you would find in the deep, deep south. I noticed uh, you get less front porch the further north <laughs> the further, you go. That's what yeah. I'm trying to and say. it's cold. Yeah, the yeah. further up 95 <laughs> you go, that front yeah. porch goes in a foot per state. <laughs> um, but there's there's a lot of... There's a lot of southernish behavior that I'd say goes as far south as maybe Orlando. Okay. Maybe a little... Maybe cut it off north of Orlando and Ocala. Where they, you know, where they got the horses and the thoroughbreds. I think right there is the southern cutoff. And I also think the western bound southern cutoff is Dallas. Yeah. I think, oh, Texas is the south. Okay. Not El Paso. El Paso is a different vibe. Good city. Lots of military. El Paso feels more like a San Diego without an ocean. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just, it's chill. It's it's just, it's far more Latino than a lot of other Southern cities. Well, not Dallas, of course, but I mean, Texas is a third Latino. But like, it's just, there's a different vibe in El Paso that I don't feel when I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana. Right. Somewhere in the desert, you go from the South to the West. Yeah. I, you know, but what's interesting is also that if you, if you Google urban comedian, You'd be surprised how many of those comics started in the South. Yeah. Well, and that I guess that's what I was trying to get at is, I mean, you see the same thing with like the way that national predominantly white reporters and media reacted to the Alabama and the Mississippi elections. And, you know, when people talk about the South, do they just default think about white men? Is that, you know, despite the fact that Alabama is 30 percent. We also, you know, I saw a very, I saw a very interesting post on Twitter um, after the Mississippi runoff in which the quote unquote, not a racist racist won the runoff and people were of course attacking Southerners and come on, the South is stupid. What's wrong with all of them stupid people? And someone, and someone snarked back and basically said like, you know, for you to assume that all Southerners are like this means that you aren't even respecting the work of the Southerners that are down here trying to do something to work against this. Stop with the generalizations and stop with the sweeping assumptions that everybody, you know, is, is one thing, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing that I really want to have an opportunity to show on my sitcom, you know, is that, you know, no matter what you think someone is, there's more there. You know, and I really want to have an opportunity to really sit back and pull back the layers of the human condition. And so you can assume that someone is what they are because of, you know, traditional stereotypes. But how did they get to that place? What happened to get them there? And also, what are they doing to get out of that? Because there's a lot of that, too. But you also don't see that on television. You don't see 
the many stories of, you know, you, you know, you know what happens? You see the stories when it's pulled off, like, like, okay. So Doug Jones, so Doug Jones wins, right? And then after that, it's a bunch of stories about all oh, the here's the stories of the black women driving black women to the polls. Did you know black women were driving black women? They were doing it when we were losing, too. Right. Where was the story? Where was the discussion? Where was the you know? And, and I think that's where sometimes the media can sometimes fail a region as well. And it's tough because. You know, the media is having to make the choice between sometimes has to make the choice between reporting what's right and what's interesting versus reporting what will get clicks, what will get a response, what will invoke some degree of interest from the public, because that's ratings. And you have to choose sometimes between ratings and actually doing something that may shine a light on something. So, you know, people don't always choose that because no one loves you. Nice plug. <laughs> well, thank you, Roy. Uh, Roy, you're the only person on Reckon's list of 25 people to watch in 2019 where our audience can actually watch you in 2019. <laughs> so uh, download his specials and This Is Not Happening and watch The Daily Show all at ComedyCentral.com. That's a wrap, y'all. Episode one is in the books. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly, so all the mistakes are mine. If you've got tips or feedback, find me on Twitter at at John Hammontree. And if you're not already following Roy, you can find him at at Roy Wood Jr. Our theme song, Dereconstructed, was produced by Sub Pop Records, and it is written and performed by Alabama's own Lee Bames III and the Glory Fires. You can find more of his music at www.thegloryfires.com. If you like Reckon, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And go to al.com slash Reckon to sign up for our newsletter and stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. Until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.